we do church doing good? All right, you look great. If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in John chapter 2. We're in week t- 2 of a 10-week series on miracles. And kind of the whole premise of the deal, we started last week uh, with Resurrection Sunday, and the idea is this, is that if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. If the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And I just need you to know that, that a miracle is kind of when the, when the unexplainable runs up against the undeniable. And I believe, I mean, I thoroughly believe this, that if the tomb is empty, if Jesus is actually alive, which we believe that he is, then everything is possible. Whatever miracle you need in your life, whether it's a financial miracle or a relational miracle or a supernatural healing kind of miracle or whatever, because if Jesus can come out of the grave, then anything is possible. And every miracle in the scriptures and even today, um, they are all temporary except one miracle. The only eternal miracle is the miracle of salvation. When God reaches down and redeems somebody and they go from death to life, every other miracle is a temporary miracle. Like in the Bible, you know, Jesus is going to heal the blind and then guess what? That guy dies and he doesn't see so good anymore, right? Until he gets to heaven, I guess. Or uh, lame people walk and then they die too. People are resurrected from the grave and then they have another funeral. That's how it typically goes, except for the one eternal miracle is the miracle of salvation. And you just need to know that last week, over 12 of our uh, resurrection services that we had starting on Thursday and Saturday and Sunday and Sunday afternoon, that 154 people surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. What's also super great about that is that 17 of those were in our Bay Meadows location. So praise God that, that God saves, the salvation is his. And 11 of those salvations were at, was at our 522 video venue that meets uh, on Sunday afternoons. And so um, we just know that salvation is God's. And so what we're talking about over this 10-week period is, is just we're talking about the miraculous. And I just you just need to know this. I am by probably nature and nurture, I'm the most skeptical dude in the room. Like, if you came up and were telling me about this miracle story, I'm like, okay. But here's what I've just got to tell you. There's just been some times in my life where there have been things that are unexplainable. I don't know how they happen. I just can't really explain it. But they're undeniable. Like a long time ago, when I was a sophomore in college, I won't tell you how long, but it's a long time. Um, <clears throat> I, get, I get out of class and I go to my attorney house, which is kind of a miracle that I made it out of there, but here I am. And, and, I, and I go and I check my answering machine. So now, if you're in your 20s, an answering machine, it's like a, it's like a machine that howls your voicemail. It was crazy. It was attached to a landline. You'll have to Google it. So anyway, I go and I hit play, and the cassette tape starts speaking. And my mom, my mom's voice is on the answering machine, and she's freaking out. She goes, Joby, you have to pray. You're Mimi. Everybody needs a Mimi, right? My grandma on my mom's side would call her Mimi. And she said, your Mimi was having a heart catheterization done, and they've clipped her aorta, and she's bleeding out. And she was at Marion Memorial Hospital. I don't know why you call any hospital memorial. That's a terrible idea. But anyway, uh, and, but Marion is like a suburb of Dillon, okay? There are more people here in this service right now than exist in all of Marion at one time. And so you don't do anything serious at Marion Hospital. And so they had to life light my grandma uh, to Charleston where Medical School of South Carolina is. And my mom's panicking, kind of crying on the phone saying, you need to pray because she's bleeding out. They're life lighting her. She's on the helicopter now. She's, she's going. And so I, I go into my room, I get my Bible and multiple times in the scriptures between John 13 and John 15, over and over and over and over, Jesus says something like, ask whatever you will in my name and it will be given to you. Now, if you're new to Bible study, that doesn't mean what you want it to mean, but it still means what it says. And so I'm on my knees and I felt the, in a way that I have a hard time explaining. I felt the presence of God with much fear and trembling on my part. And I was just begging God that he would just save my grandma, just save her, just save her. She's bleeding out on this, in this helicopter. And so when the helicopter lands uh, in Charleston, there's just no more bleeding. It's just gone. And so I got in my truck the next day and I drove down to Marion from Richmond where I was in school and I opened the door of my grandma's house and there's Mimi just vacuuming. Well, hey, sugar, come on in. All right. Now, how do you explain that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But if the tomb is empty, then Mimi can vacuum. That's what I'm saying. All right. 48 hours later, she's making me sweet tea and fried chicken in Jesus' name. And so I am just here to tell you, if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And so the miracle that we're going to talk about today is where Jesus turns water into wine. Now, there's two reasons I want to teach that. First of all, I'd like to make all of our Southern Baptists feel super uncomfortable, all right? Because I know we got a bunch of recovering Baptists here. And so, you know, just relax. I can tell you're already puckered up. All right. It's going to be, you're going to be offended most of the time. 
And then also just want to make our Catholics feel right at home, okay? Because we're like, oh, finally, all right, this is great. Now, you see, especially to our recovering Baptists, one of the great freedoms of being a part of 1122 is now you can say hey to your, your friends in the liquor store. So that's just uh, our gift to you. You wait, you'll be like, I think we go to church together. All right, so that's just, that's just on the house. So Jesus' very first miracle, this could be the first one, he turns water into wine. And just so, like my grandma told me, it wasn't real wine. Well, she was real wrong, okay? It is actually real wine. Here we go. John chapter 2, we're going to study 11 verses. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, (laughs) it really is as sharp as it appears, all right? If you have an NIV translation of the Bible, they throw the word deer in there, but it does not, the Greek does not say deer woman, it just says, woman, what does this have to do with me? (laughs) Which you should never ever quote to a woman, ever, 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 ever. But you're not Jesus, so whatever. So Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We might want to underline that. We're going to come back to that. That means something. That hour that he's talking about is that hour where he pushes up on the cross and says, it is finished. That's what that that little phrase, my hour, means. My hour has not yet come. And so his mother said to his service some of the best advice in all of the scriptures, particularly if you think about it in the context of miracles that, that, that Mary understands that they're out of wine, and why would she go and talk to Jesus? Here's why, because she knows he can do something about it. And even though he hasn't done a miracle yet, she has not forgotten that very first miracle at Christmas when he came on the scene. When the angel showed up in her bedroom and said, Mary, you are with child, you were pregnant. And she's going, hey, listen, I know I've failed uh, health class, but there is a pretty requisite to pregnancy that I have not participated in. And the angel essentially said, well, guess what? It's God's baby and he's in there, all right? Merry Christmas. And so she knows... She knows that, 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 that Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants to do. And so she comes to him and she says, hey, listen, they are out of wine. And then here is the best advice in all of the scriptures. She tells him, do whatever he tells you. And she says, do whatever he tells you after she doesn't really get the answer from him in regards to miracles that she was expecting. Let me just tell you to, to trust God and just do whatever Jesus tells you. It's great advice particularly if he's not uh, doing what you want him to do. And so here's what they do in verse six. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. What this meant is in the first century, um, there, were, there were ceremonial washings all over the place. I don't know if you've seen like Jesus movies on TV. There's a whole lot of beach. There's not a lot of ocean, okay? So it's really sandy. Everybody's dirty all the time. And so you would come into places like this and you, would, you wouldn't have time to like shower like we do today, like daily. So you would just wash your hands and you would do it ceremonially by sticking your hands all the way in up to your elbows into these big stone jars, washing all the dirt off your hand and then kind of shaking them dry. So... Also, uh, first century weddings would last for, uh, the party wouldn't be like a couple hours. It would be a week, long time. So people have been washing their hands in these jars over and over and over. So there's six stone jars and they're there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So think about the servants. The servants are like, we are about to punk the master of the feast. I know he's had some wine. You think he'll notice that he's about to drink some nasty, dirty water. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, hey, bridegroom, come here. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, you know what I'm talking about, then the poor wine. Pastor, what does this mean? You know what this means. Maybe you're not a wine drinker, but here's what this means. You start your evening off with a nice local craft beer, but then by the end, it's Natty Light. That's just what it is, okay? (laughs) I'm just reading the Bible to you people. You ought to read the Word. Starts out with the high-end stuff with a cork. By the end of the night, right, you're into the box stuff. That's what he's saying. He says, but you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. That's a big, big little line there. This, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him or trusted him. 
You see, for the next nine weeks, we started last week, but for the next nine weeks, we're going to be talking about miracles. And what we believe, what I believe is that, is that these are not like fables or parables. These are actual events. And the reason is because if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible, including the miracle that you need right now. If the tomb is empty, then Jesus can heal your marriage. He can heal your finances. He can resurrect a dead relationship. He can, bro- he could, he could fix broken promises. And surely he could turn water to wine. No problem. You see, <clears throat> there are a whole lot of things in our world that are unexplainable, but they're undeniable. That as we try to explain them, even in the ways that we are comfortable with, with math and science and some of those things, that, that they just don't add up, but they're undeniable. Did you know a few years ago, this Yale physicist named Robert Adair, he did a study on the possibility of hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball. And here's what he found. Okay, I'll shorten it up, but the, the time it takes for a pitcher throwing a 90 mile an hour fastball, when he releases it from here, his release point, to the time it hit the catcher's mitt, it's about 0.4 seconds. But if you measure, if you measure the time it takes for the batter to recognize the ball, for the eyes to tell the brain that that's a hittable pitch, and for the brain to tell your hands to throw the butt of the bat at the ball, okay? You, you, don't, you don't wanna dip first, you gotta, I can teach you that later, okay? But, and to come all the way through, if you wanna hit that ball, it, it, takes, <clears throat> it takes that time to recognize it, and then for your brain, for your eyes to tell your brain, let's hit this one, and for your brain to tell your hands to go towards the, go towards the ball. Then it takes about .5 seconds for your body to do all that. It takes .4 seconds for a 90 mile an hour fastball to get from the pitcher to the catcher, and it takes longer than that .5 seconds for the hitter to figure out if he's gonna swing it or not. And so, this Yale physicist deduces that hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball is physically and physiologically impossible, scientifically speaking. The only problem is what? It's undeniable. People do it all the time. In fact, 90 isn't even that fast. I mean, it's fast for normal people like us, but you know, if you're gonna play for the Braves, you're gonna have to sling more than 90 unless you're throwing junk. We ain't talking about junk, we're talking about fastballs, you understand? And yet, a good player, about a third of the time they try, they actually hit and get on base. So what do you do? There are these things in our world that are unexplainable, but they're just undeniable. Even another statistical improbability and scientific impossibility is life on earth. The probability of life just happening on earth is a statistical impossibility, but it's undeniable. Look around. There's a lot of us here. It just happens. There are things that we cannot explain, but that does not mean that they cannot happen. And I know that most of us have a predisposition against miracles because a lot of us have not experienced the kind of miracles that are attested to in the scriptures. And here, over the next nine weeks, here's here's how I want you to think about it. First and foremost, you've just got to keep coming back to if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. If the tomb is empty... Anything is possible. But think about this. Now, everybody, you gotta think, gotta stay with me here. Imagine that we all lived in a two-dimensional world, okay? That every single one of us were in two dimensions. All we had was length and width. It's like we lived on the TV screen, okay? We did not have depth, height or depth at all, but we all lived on a two-dimensional world. That means like we're all little stick figures here. And if there was on our piece plane of life, on the piece of paper that we lived on, if there was a line that stretched all the way from one piece of the paper to the other piece of the paper, as a two-dimensional person, when you came up to that line, you would say, this is impassable, this is impossible, there is no way for us to get around this line because it goes from the end of the paper to the end of the paper. And then imagine into our two-dimensional world, a three-dimensional person shows up. And they had the, the ability of height and depth. And so what we see is impassable, impossible. They say, no, dude, you just step over it like this. And two-dimensional world would go, ah, it's a miracle. And the three-dimensional dude would be like, no, it's not even hard. Watch, I can go back the other way too, okay? So what if Jesus, the creator of everything we know in the known universe, he just spoke it into existence? The brother can take some dirty water and he can turn it into wine. Because he is, he is before all things and in all things and through all things and all things were created by him and for him and through him and to him. So what we see as miraculous, you know, it's just like another day at the beach for Jesus. Now, this, in this particular situation, um, <clears throat> hospitality was a really, really, really big deal. And again, the wedding parties, they would last for like a week. And so Mary comes to Jesus and maybe she comes to him on behalf of the bride and the groom and the, and the wedding planner because their character, their name, their reputation is at stake here. I mean, these parties would last for a week, and if you ran out of wine, it would be an incredible embarrassment for your family. And so maybe she comes to Jesus because of that, also knowing that he is this miracle baby, and he is the son of God, and that he could do something about it. And so then Jesus makes the ultimate divine 
beer run to make the party keep going. Praise God. So that leads to a few questions, okay? Um, and I, honestly, I almost hesitated from going down this road because what, what you cannot do, even though we're going to talk about it for a little while, what you cannot do is, is try to reduce this miracle at the wedding to kind of commentary on social drinking. But I just thought like in, in our society these days, and especially right here where we live, we should talk about this. You see, so Jesus is at this party. Now, when you're my age, I don't know if where you go matters a whole lot, okay? I'm 42 years old. We, we usually, you know, we're Uber home by nine o'clock. I mean, that's just kind of where we are. When we get home, our babysitter's getting ready to go out. And we're like, whatever, man, you're a fool. I'm going to sleep when it's dark. All right, so typically when we're at the restaurant, the lights dim while we're there. You know what I mean? But we, okay, so that's where we are. But when I was doing student ministry and working with college students and young singles and all that sort of thing, one of the questions is, where should I go? Should I be at these kind of environments where people are drinking and yada, yada, yada? Now, here, here's what I would point you to is that, the, the number one thing that Jesus was harassed for, or the, the number one question that he was asked is, why are you hanging out with those people? Like if you go to Matthew chapter nine, verses 10 through 13, it says, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, they're like the religious police, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so the question is, should you hang out at Pete's Bar and the Lemon Bar and wherever else you hang out? And the answer is, it depends. It depends. So let's just first be honest about this, okay? Honest assessment. First of all, you ain't Jesus, okay? So I know he was hanging out there, but every single time he hung out there, he was always salt and light and a city on a hill. In other words, every environment that Jesus hung out in, he was the primary influencer, influencing people towards the gospel and towards himself, and so my answer to you would be yes, if in those environments you conduct yourself in such a way by building your friendships and, and loving people and walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in those environments you are influencing people to Jesus, yes, by all means, you have been placed there by God. But, but if every time you end up in those environments, you, if you're honest, and again, if you feel yourself getting really defensive right now, it might be the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you gotta get that part of your life up. But hey, that's when you and him, all right? I'm just talking. So uh, if you know every time I go into those environments, man, it leads me away from Jesus. I am the one being influenced, not being the influence. One of my, uh, the guy that led me to the Lord, Coach Lee, he used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And here's what this means. If you're hanging out with a bunch of idiots, you're probably gonna be an idiot. And the question that you have to be honest about is this, are you becoming more like the idiots you're hanging out with or is God sent you into the land of idiots to bring them unto himself? And that will be the answer of where, of where you should hang out. It's why we make such a big deal about disciple groups around here. The Bible says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. We would like for you to have the kind of relationships here at church, be surrounded by some men and women that point you to Jesus. So honestly, only you and Jesus can answer that question of where you should hang out. Now, as a church, you've just got to know this, that we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we, as a church, as the body of Christ here in Jacksonville, what we wanna be is we wanna be a lot like Jesus. That means the kind of people that like Jesus ought to like being here because this church is a movement for all people. And if that makes you uncomfortable, okay? If you've been at church a long time and, and, and you show up here to our church, and you're like, what are those people doing here? Those people are here because Jesus died on the cross for those people like me, okay? And so here's how it will go. Here's how I'll know I'm in trouble is because, which is pretty often, but I'll get this email. Dear pastor, my soul was grieved this Lord's day as I was on my way into the Lord's house. And at the door, I saw a young man with face tattoos and piercings, and he was smoking a cigarette. And my soul was grieved. Do you know this man? And I say, yeah, it's one of our ushers. <laughs> so <laughs> I reply, step one, get over yourself, okay? 
<laughs> step two, be more like Jesus, right? And step three, we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what I would say is if, you haven't, if you've never fit into a church, then this is like the island of misfit toys of churches, okay? You'll probably do okay here. And even if you don't believe what I believe yet, guess what? You can belong before you believe. We're a movement. For, now, we love you enough to not leave you where you are. We're going to tell you the truth, all right? But, but, but we love you, and you are in the right place. This is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. So should you hang out in those places? It depends. Now, Jesus did conduct himself in such a way that then they were making a guest list. Somebody said, man, we need that Jesus there. He's a good time. So I hope you are, I hope you are living that way too. Now, which leads to the next question about the alcohol itself. He did turn water to wine. I mean, I know, hang in there, Southern Baptist, but they were running out of alcohol and Jesus said, I got this, all right? So the question then becomes, is drinking a sin? Is drinking a sin? Okay, I think first and foremost, I think we have firmly established, established over our years together that if you put fruit in beer, that is clearly a sin. So let's try not to do that, all right? Here we go. I will just say this right out of the gate, if you're underage, absolutely, drinking is a sin. You can rationalize it all you want to, that's just called justification, but not the good kind, the bad kind, and it's a sin, so stop. Now, for the rest of us, there are, for the of age people, there is a continuum, and I'll start with the extremes. There is a group of people, and honestly, it's, it's judgmental fundamentalism. And they have decided, not only for themselves, but for the rest of us, that it is absolutely wrong all the time, no matter what, and if you drink, then you're going to hell, and you should. Okay? To that crowd, I would say, you should probably relax and have a drink. All right? That's a part of your problem. <laughs> Nobody likes you, and it's your fault. It really is. And uh, you don't have to worry about it, because you don't get invited to parties, so it's fine. But if you would like friends, you should probably just chill out for a second. Now, in fact, it's e it can get easy to kind of go down this road pretty quickly. Um, in, in fact, there, there's a, a very famous preacher, a very famous preacher uttered these words, and he's a great Bible teacher with a whole lot of conviction and great doctrine and a whole lot of passion, and in a very fiery sermon said these words, I'd rather have a rattlesnake in my baby's crib than the devil's drink in my fridge. If he's going to be on record, I'll go on record too. I would rather have beer in my fridge than any kind of snake around any of my family. That's where I'm at, okay? Just, if those are the two options, uh, you can have all the snakes, all right? You keep all the snakes. I'll trade you all the snakes in Florida, and I'll still keep the beer in my fridge, all right? So that's just, that's just where I am on this. Now, <clears throat> here's the problem. The real problem with the judgmental fundamentalists is not the decision that they've made for themselves, but to just try to impose that decision on everybody else. And if you fall in that camp, what I honestly think, we probably don't have a lot of you in here because you've probably been offended and left already, but I would like to read to you a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the father of the Protestant Reformation, all right? And you gotta put on your big boy pants to read Martin Luther, okay? So here's what Martin Luther says. He says, whenever the devil harasses you, Seek the company of good friends, or drink more, or joke and talk nonsense, or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, and sport, and recreate ourselves, and even sin a little, despite the devil, so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and write freely just because you told me not to. Isn't that great? <laughs> Makes me want to become a Lutheran. I don't know about you, but that's great. <laughs> now let me tell you what he does not mean, okay? That's why you gotta put on your big point pants when you lead, read Luther. This is not a license to sin. This is fundamentally that becoming a Christian, that following after Jesus, that surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ is not an outside-in activity. It's an inside-out transformation. And that being a Christian is not sin management. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and so if you get all of your focus on what you're not supposed to be doing, you're actually not focusing on the main thing, and the main thing is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so... The problem, again, with the judgmental fundamentalists is their imposition of the, that opinion on everybody else as if it is the standard. If that's where you tend to find yourself, 
being like in your heart, maybe you're trying not to say it, but in here you find yourself being judgmental, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 14 over and over and over again. Here's what Romans 14 says. It is talking about this. Now, it's talking about food sacrifice to idols, but it would be very similar to the discussion today about should a Christian drink or not. And so in Romans chapter 14, verses one through four, it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. And so kind of where you land on this spectrum is really, I mean, it can be very, very biblical in form, but it's really, there's a lot of different opinions. Verse two, one person believes that he may eat anything, or in in this case, drink anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Hear that, vegans? (laughs) That's what the Bible says, all right? So you should have a steak and see sunlight and get some vitamin D and those things, but that's a different sermon, all right? Verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of one another? So again, the problem, the problem is if, if, the, if the Lord has led you for you or you in your house to say, hey, listen, we're teetotalers, we ain't touching it, we're not even using soap with alcohol, praise the Lord. You just don't impose that on everybody else because that's what God has called you to. Now, that's all the way on this side. I don't know that there's a lot of those in, in and around 1122, maybe, but you probably don't talk to me at the end of the service, no problem. I think where our church has a watch is way over here on the other side. So if that extreme is, is judgmental fundamentalism, then this extreme would be what the Bible calls a drunkard. And I would like to even divide this up. There are some of you in here and you're an alcoholic. And I would say, please get help. Please get help. The tough part about it is you're probably the last to know. And a lot of people are trying to help you and love you and warn you. And please, there is no shame in your game here at 1122. Every single one of us are addicted to something. But if you have found in your world that you reached out to grab onto fun, but now fun's got a hold of your neck and it ain't fun anymore. And there are just things in here, demons or diseases that are driving you to places that you do not want to go, then you need help. And you are in a safe place here at the Church of 1122. All right, there are lots of programs here in town that we partner with, and I, you man, take those steps and take those 12 steps and go to one of the homes or, or one of the programs or AA, but do whatever it takes to step towards Jesus because the reality is every single one of us in the room, we've got issues and we got problems and we need a savior. That's why Jesus came. And if because of the cross, then you do not hang your head around here. There is no shame. The Bible says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you've got issues with substances that have control over you, then please, please, please get help and let us help you out of there. Because I've got good news. Here's the good news. There's a whole bunch of people that used to be addicted to stuff that, and stuff had control over their lives. But because the tomb is empty, those shackles have fallen off. And that could be true for you too. Okay, so that's to the, to the alcoholic. Now, if you step, step it back one notch, I think there's a, a, a group of people also, and you're not, you're not an alcoholic, you don't have the disease of alcoholism or the demons of alcoholism. You're just what the Bible would call a fool. You just drink too much. I mean, just straight up, you just drink too much. And, and the Bible in Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the moment you find yourself trying to like define what drunk is or not, here's the way I would just say it. The one of the, a fruit of the spirit is self-control. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so the spirit wants in you self-control. If you're drinking to the point where you do not have control, then guess what? That is not the work of the father. That is the work of the enemy. It is the opposite of the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. And so I hope that you would have some friends, some people that would love you enough that could speak into that. And you gotta throttle back. It is always a good idea to fast from those kind of things physically that tempt you. You you should always fast for some seasons. Now, kind of back over here on the other side, not the judgmental fundamentalist, but but kind of the conscientious abstainer. The person that has decided, um, look, I can't walk down that road a little bit. Uh, if I drink a beer, I drink a weekend, and it just goes to crazy town, okay? I just can't go down that. Yeah, if you don't want to fall down, don't walk in slippery places. So if that is a slippery place for you, then, then, then the best decision for you is nothing ever, none, no way. Also, there's a group of people because of verses like Romans 14, 21 that says, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And you say, because of that, I'm gonna say no. Praise God, praise God. 
The thing is, every single one of us, wherever we find ourselves on the continuum, we've got to make sure that's what God's call for us is in our current circumstances and make room for everybody else that's on that continuum. You see, we need each other and we're a family and we're supposed to do this together. And to a whole bunch of us in the middle, I would say this, do not let your freedom lead you to bondage. Do not let your freedom lead you to bondage. The Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse one, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Again, if you don't wanna fall down, don't walk in slippery places. And one of the key um, tools of the enemy is that he takes a good gift from God And if you do a Bible study on wine and alcohol all throughout the scriptures, you'll primarily see that the Bible talks about it as a gift, but then the enemy takes all kinds of gifts from God and he twists them, he twists them to hurt God's people. I mean, take food, food is a gift from God. And then the enemy comes along and you have eating disorders and gluttony, Uh, sex. If you you wanna know we serve a good God, maybe you're new to this whole Bible study thing, did you know that God invented sex? Think about that all week. That'll make your mind explode, all right? We could have had babies any other way. He could have made your toes just swell up. Oh, look, we got twins, all right? But he didn't. He's like, I have an idea, Joe. And then what happened? The enemy comes and takes a good gift from God and then twists it into something that it's not. And so the Bible was gonna talk about, about wine as a gift from God, but then the enemy twists that to put people in bondage. You see, the enemy is like a really good bass fisherman, man. He'll throw whatever lure he has to. So he might, for some of you, he throws that lure of alcohol over there and you're like, no, I'm good. But for some of you, man, you see that lure of alcohol and you're like, oh, I got to have that. The problem with the lure has got a hook in it. And you're like, yes, and you grab onto it and you're like, no, because he's grabbing onto you. And so be careful. You just have to be honest where you are there. But the enemy will take a good gift, a good gift, and he'll twist it. Some of my favorite verses when it comes to wine and how we should celebrate uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, a part of the reason I love Deuteronomy 14 is because it starts off in verse 22. It starts off with God talking to the nation of Israel about what happens when you tithe, and it's not talking about just a collection at church, but when you say, God, you are before all things, when you order your life with, with God before all things, then there are these blessings of God, and he gives instructions to you on what you do with the blessings. And I love it from the King James Version just because it sounds awesome. In verse 22 of Deuteronomy 14, it says, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth each year by year. And then here's some instructions on what you do with God's increase in your life. He says, Thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thou soul lusteth after to eat oxen or sheep or for wine or strong drink or for whatsoever thou soul desireth that thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God and thou shalt rejoice thou and thine household. In other words, we should party in such a way that brings glory to God. There are ways where it's a trap from the enemy that leads to terrible things. The Bible warns about that. And then there's other ways where we eat in such a way that says praise God. We drink good wine in such a way that does not worship the gift but always worships the giver of the gift. In Psalm 104, the Bible says, God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. That's why God gave it, to gladden the heart of man. And oil to make his face shine. I know many of you ladies spend a whole lot of dollars to not have shiny faces, but back in the day, if you had money, you'd like oil up your face. and be like, Look, I'm doing well, okay? And bread to strengthen man's heart. Then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he writes a letter to this young pastor in 1 Timothy, and he's telling him um, how to be a pastor. And here's what he says, no longer drink only water. This is to Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. You know why he has frequent ailments? Because he's a pastor of a church, and it's hard. All right, so he says drink a little. All right, now, here, here, overall, overall, what you cannot do, what you have to fight against, is if you allow your legalism or your license to be your God, you've fallen into idolatry. It, the legalism and what you do and don't do is not your God, nor is your freedom your God, but Jesus alone is our God. And so don't do anything that takes our eyes off him and wherever you land on that continuum, and I would just say this, if you're in the extremes, if you're the if you're the religious judgmental fundamentalist, or if you're way over here and you really do have a problem with alcohol, surrender it to the Lordship of Christ. And then for everybody else that's kind of on this continuum in the middle, no matter where you land, make sure that we leave room for each other and we love each other enough 
to, to treat each other full of grace and full of truth. And now, again, I just want to warn you, if you think that if you think that John chapter two is a commentary on social drinking, then you'll miss the whole point of the whole thing. So here's why Jesus turns water into wine. It's really found in two verses. It's verse four and it's verse 11. In verse four, it says, and Jesus said to her, this is right after Mary comes up and says, hey, we're out of wine here. And he says, and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And what he means here when he says, my hour has not yet come, he is talking about that moment when he is going to go to the cross, when Jesus is going to push up on his nail-pierced feet and he's going to say, it is finished. And what he's talking about there in that hour is that all of the payment for our sin has been made. That Jesus, to his mom, basically is saying, listen, I know why I have come. That Jesus was not created at Christmas, that, that the Son has eternally existed, that we, we serve one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Son, when he shows up on that Christmas morning, he knows that he has been sent on purpose to, to perform a rescue mission for you and for me. That one day, at the cross and the resurrection, that 2 Corinthians 5.21 would be fulfilled. That God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made his righteousness. And he knows the moment that he starts um, showing people his glory by doing public miracles, that, that, that the that stopwatch was on, the first domino would go, and it would lead to the point that he would be resurrected on the third day. That's what that hour is. He is talking about, he is talking about that moment that he would endure the full wrath of God. And then he does this miracle, and here's what it says about it in verse 11. It says this, the first sign, you, you might want to underline that, his signs, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him, or his disciples trusted him. See, here's the thing about a sign. A sign isn't really anything in and of itself. A sign is not the thing. A sign points to something greater than itself. So if you're driving down 95 and you see a sign for Jacksonville, that sign is not Jacksonville. That sign points you to something greater than that sign. It points you to the real thing, to Jacksonville. And so what Jesus is saying here is there is a reason I did this. I didn't just do this because they just needed to party longer. That was not the point. But it was a picture for me to point to something else, something bigger and something greater. You see, here's the point, really, of all of Jesus' miracles the purpose of Jesus' miracles isn't necessarily to show his raw power. Like, he wasn't just flexing for the sake of flexing. Because, you know, he, he wasn't just, he could have walked around town and just levitated everybody. Hey, you don't believe I'm God? Watch this. See, that was cool, right? He doesn't do that. He's not just demonstrating his raw power, but he's pointing to his redemptive purpose. There's a reason. This is a sign. The fact that I turned water into wine points to something. Now, here's what I think. I'm taking a little bit of of a guest, but give me a little hermeneutical license, all right? Bible's over there, I'm over here. What if Jesus is doing what every single person at a wedding does? And I don't mean every single person, I mean every single person. Every time a single person goes to a wedding, here's what they do. They think about their wedding or their potential wedding. That's what they do, okay? Girls, if you're anywhere between the ages of like four and 114, that's what you're thinking about, okay? <laughs> And all the single ladies, they get back here and they just, and they critique it. And they're like, her dress is all right, but I don't think I'd wear that in white. Give me a break. And those three over there, they look like Easter eggs. I mean, you know, that's what you do. It's this weird mix of like uh, competitiveness and hope. And, you know, it is the feminine experience, right? That's y'all just, here we go. And you're thinking, and if you brought a date, you're just dropping hints. You're like, <clears throat> you know, just doing this all the time. That's what you're doing. Thinking about your wedding. And guys, single guys, they kind of go into a couple categories, all right? There's one group of guys, and they're really guys, just boys that can shave, and they're like, not me, I hope never. You know, it's going to interrupt my Xbox career, whatever, all right? And so <laughs> that's them. But then they do this thing that's called grow up, and they think about the day that they'll get married. They'll imagine all this. What if Jesus, a single man, he's about 30 years old, what if he's thinking about his wedding day? And some of you are like, hey, wait a minute now. I, I didn't think Jesus got married. He didn't here on earth, but if you go to the book of Revelation... There is this description in Revelation chapter 21 and Revelation chapter 19 of the wedding day of the feast, the wedding banquet of the lamb. And Jesus is the lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the universe. And so what if Jesus is thinking about this great wedding? And what if he's thinking the price that he will have to pay to provide wine at his wedding? Because wine for him really means blood. And what if that's what he is pondering? You see, the same guy that jotted down John chapter 2 he also wrote the book of Revelation. And if you're new to Bible study, it's not Revelations 
There are not many of them. It's like one dream, one vision, uh, one, one thing that John saw, and the angel said, hey, write all this down. And so if you go to Revelation chapter 21, you'll see what the ultimate wedding day looks like. And so when Jesus is saying that, hey, my hour has not yet come, he understands that when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. He understands that one day he will have to go to the cross and the cup of the wrath of God will be poured out on him so that this wedding day can happen forever, ever and in heaven. And what if that's what he is thinking of? What if he is thinking of Revelation chapter 21, verses one through six, that says this, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, one of the primary illustrations in the Bible between the relationship between the church, not like the local organization, but the group of people that love Jesus and God is of a covenant, covenant marriage. You see, not a contract. And most people that grow up in church, honestly, most people think of their relationship with God as a contract. If I do these things, then God would love me. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. This is not a relationship with AT&T. This is a relationship with your heavenly father. And the closest picture we can find to that is a covenant where two people that don't know anything about the future know this, that no matter what, I promise for better, or for worse, for richer, or for poor, for sickness or in health, that I promise no matter what you do, I'm gonna love you. Can you imagine being at a wedding if they did contracts instead of covenants? If the preacher said for better or worse, and the guy was like, I don't know, I'll take better. I don't know about what you mean by worse, okay? I will love you as long as you cook this much, sleep with me this much, and you, you, you got 10 pounds, okay, that's it. And if she said, all right, okay, all right, I see that contract, but I see you cashing prizes, all right, you better provide and protect. And by provide, I've already picked out the house, there's my Zillow account, you understand? And so if you were watching that, wouldn't you be like, oh, this is terrible, this is never gonna work, <laughs> right? The only way this thing is gonna work is if it's in a covenant, and so this picture is, that I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then here's the relationship part. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And then if you back up to chapter 19, it, 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 it describes the wedding party. And it says, then I heard, this is verse six of Revelation 19. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty, mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. And listen to this description of a party. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Here's why. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. <clears throat> and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. What if that's what Jesus was thinking of? What if that's what he was thinking of? And then he goes, okay, all right, I'm gonna turn this water into wine. And the reason I'm gonna do it, not just so the party can keep going, that's fine. But the real reason I'm gonna do it is here's why, because blessed are those who are invited into the marriage supper of the lamb. And I wanna show throughout all of human history, I wanna show a picture of what it looks like to be invited to the great, to the great wedding supper in heaven. I got some good news about Jesus's invitation to his wedding. Number one, everybody's invited. Every single person is invited. No matter what you believe yet, no matter what you've done, no matter how you grew up, that every single one of us receive an invitation to surrender our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I've got also good news. Everybody's invited and everybody gets in the same way. There's only one way into this party and it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I've got really great news. And the price for his ticket has already been paid. He has already paid your full admission into the great wedding feast. And so what did he mean when he said this is a sign? He's gonna give us a picture when he turns water into wine of what it looks like to get invited into, into this great party. You see, notice what he did not tell the servants to do. 
He didn't say, hey, servant, see those six stone jars? So here's some Clorox wipes. Why don't you get over there and scrub the dirt off the outside? Because that would have been a sign to religion. Because here's the truth. If they go out there and they clean the outside, a little wax on, wax off until their arms fall off. If they clean the outside of these stone jars, no matter how much they polish up the outside, it will never do anything to change the dirty water that's on the inside. That's what religion is. That's what a contract is. That's what outside-in moralistic deism does for you. The other thing is you might, you'll, you'll rub your fingers raw. Eventually, you get exhausted, and you have to quit. And the thing is, the problem is, the water on the inside never changes. You see, the reality is the dirty water that everybody's washing their hands in, it is a picture of your and my spiritual condition. That on the inside of us, it's a mess. Even if you don't believe in Jesus yet, can we just agree, on the inside, there's a mess? I mean, has anybody treated you as bad as you? Has anybody let you down as much as you? Has anybody broken more promises to you than you? I mean, think about it. Ten commandments from God. Forget that. You got like two commandments and can't keep those, right? I mean, one of them's like, get up on time. Miss that again. I mean, it really is. Quit using this word. Can't do that. Do you ever hear bad news about somebody you're supposed to love and you feel good inside? Oh, is it just me? Okay, well, then I'm the crooked, depraved one. You liars, see? You're also liars. Just add lying to your list, too, bunch of sinners. That's just true. So what does Jesus do? Notice what he doesn't do. Also, he doesn't say, all right, bring me the water and we're gonna run it through a couple of filters and try to strain out all this bad stuff and we're gonna try to make it better and make it potable. Because I'm just telling you, the Christian life is not, it's not sin management. The Christian life is not just trying to strain bad stuff out of your life. That will lead, it, that, that's just remorse and resolution. The Christian life is repentance. And so what Jesus does is he gives this sign. They dip out this old, dirty, nasty water that people have been washing their hands in for days, and then he transforms it into something that's beautiful. There is no more water. The old is gone and the new has come because he has created a new creation. And at the wedding feast, he's going to say, I make all things new. And what he wants to start with is you. And so you have been invited to this covenant relationship with God that one day will be celebrated in heaven with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And blessed are those who are invited to that party. And right now, on behalf of Jesus, I would like to invite you. And you're like, okay, well, what do I do? Actually, all you do is RSVP. Say, I'll come. How do I do that? You believe. You admit, I need a Savior, and it ain't me. You believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for you. Even if you don't fully understand, you could fully believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that it counted for you. And the Bible says you confess him as Lord. And then you go to the party. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes. If, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while, would you just remind yourself of the gospel and thank the Lord for it? And if you would say today, for the very first time, that you are ready to, to receive the invitation of Jesus to have your sins forgiven, to be in a covenant relationship with the Almighty God, to be invited to that internal wedding feast, then you just tell him. I don't have magic words. You don't have to repeat after me. You just admit, you admit that you need a savior. You believe when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for you. And in this moment, you confess, all right, God, change me and save me. And the Bible says in this moment that you'd be saved. And if that's you, just raise your hand high and say, God, here I am. I want to receive that invitation to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you loved us first, that you are love, and that Jesus came on a rescue mission. And God, Lord, I pray that there's not a man, woman, or student in this place today that turns their back on that invitation. But Lord, I pray that you would transform all the dirty insides in here into something very, very beautiful. And God, we thank you that you love us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, the way that we're going to close the service is we're going to celebrate Holy Communion. And so if you're on the end seats, uh, there is a basket under your chair. And I hope you didn't use it for trash because it's the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> and so um, I ordain you all ministers of the gospel so you can pass them on down. The person in the middle, you're going to have to get acrobatic in a minute and kind of go over and under. But I believe in you. I think you can do it. Also, this is the Lord's Supper. This is not my supper. And so he invites you to the table. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we would invite you to partake with us. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he got his disciples together and he took bread and they were celebrating the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he was, had some rabbi stuff he was supposed to say. 
And instead of saying that, when he broke it, he says, this is my body broken for you. And what he was talking about were things like what Isaiah prophesied about him, about the Messiah that would come, that by his stripes we are healed. That when Jesus Christ would go to the cross, that his physical body would be broken. And the reason that it would be broken would be for the forgiveness of our sins. And so at this point, the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. But by that Sunday, when he is resurrected from the grave, that's when it made sense. And also, God gave us this. He instituted this ordinance at the church so that every time we do this, we are reminded that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son to be broken on the cross so that we don't have to be broken anymore. He said, this is my body, broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. then he took the cup. Again, the cup can represent the wrath of God. But here, Jesus holds up the cup after they had had supper. And he says, this cup is my blood. Now again, they don't know what he's talking about. They don't know that the next day he's going to suffer and die on a cross. And he's going to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. Just like a lamb of God had been slain for the covering of people's sins for thousands of years. But he's saying tomorrow everything changes because I am gonna fully and finally satisfy the prophecy that pointed to the Messiah, the Christ. This cup is my blood. And he says, and it's a new covenant or a new testament. Covenant and testament mean the same thing. So the old covenant or the old testament is a covenant of law. It's about obeying the 10 commandments. But the new covenant, the new testament is a covenant of grace, a covenant of grace. And as often as you drink of this, you do so in remembrance of me. And the Bible says in the New Testament that as the church began to grow and mature, that when the family of God would get together, the ecclesia, the movement of God would get together and they they would break bread together like we have just done and they would study the scriptures together. And when they would do Holy Communion, that they would kind of finalize their service by singing hymns and spiritual songs and psalms. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to respond by singing to God because he's worth it. That's what worship means. That means, God, you are worth it. And also, we would invite you to come and pray. It's the reason we've got carpets down here in the front. We've got altar rails here because the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And so maybe there's some things that you need to come and pray about. And then lastly, if you're a regular here, then we, we honor God, we worship God with our finances. We bring our tithes and offerings, our first and our best. And the only reason why is because God is first and God first loved us by giving us his best in Jesus. So would you please stand as we respond?